0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to be in God's house with all of you this morning as we celebrate our Lord here at this 11 o'clock worship service. As I was thinking about legacy this week, I wonder how when my time on earth here is completed, how I will be remembered a month, a year, five years, ten years, even a hundred years if they still remember me, How I will be known as. And I wonder if you ask yourself the same very question. What will your earthly legacy look like until our Lord comes again? If he doesn't come for a thousand years, how will your name be remembered for a thousand years? What will they say of you? How will you be described? In Apostle Paul's sermon at Antioch, recorded in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, he refers to a statement in his sermon made by God concerning King David. Now, you have to remember from the time of David to the time of Paul, more than a thousand years. And he speaks his words concerning David. I have found David, the son of Jesse... A man after my own heart, who will do all my will. David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. What a wonderful honor, hundreds of years after you have no longer walked this earth, to be known as a man whose heart beats the very same as God's whose life that was lived very much pleased the Lord. A man who loved God, but a man after God's own heart. Now, as you think about the life of King David, we remember that although he was one of Israel's greatest kings, he made some terrible mistakes in his life. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer to name among some of the darker moments of his life. How can such a broken, flawed man be known as a man after God's own heart? Now you have to remember, this is not one man's opinion or assessment of another man. This is Almighty God's assessment, the one who sees all. God assesses David This flawed and broken man as a man after my own heart. It's one thing after we leave this earth to be assessed one thing. But to have this assessment set of us by God himself is a wonderful honor. And therefore, in these next 12 weeks, we're going to examine the life of King David we're going to see what type of heart he cultivated, that we may also cultivate the very same heart so that we can be known as men and women after God's own heart. And so this morning we begin our new series entitled David, A Man After God's Own Heart. And we want to first begin by looking and understanding what God looks at when he examines each one of us What are his criteria When he sizes us up What type of heart What type of person is he looking for If you have your Bibles I'd like to encourage you to turn with me To the book of 1st Samuel Chapter 16 As we take a look at verses 1 to 13 This morning 1st Samuel chapter 16 Verse 1 to 13 If you're new to the Bible this morning This morning It's in the Old Testament. It's towards the first third of your Bible, following the book of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and then you get to the book of 1 Samuel. Put a bookmark there. Put your Bible ribbon there. We're going to be in this book for the next 12 weeks, this as well as 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, as well as different Psalms. So we're going to be in the Old Testament in this series. 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 1 to 13. As you're turning this passage, let me share with you something that happened uh, two weeks ago. As you know, two weeks ago I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, to speak at a summer conference for three churches who combined. I didn't know them, they didn't know me. I was invited to be their speaker after they listened to some of my sermons. And through the endorsement of my father, whom they knew, they decided to invite me to speak at their summer conference. A few months before the conference, they asked me to send a short biography of myself along with a picture for their conference promotion. I didn't think anything of it. I'd spoken at many conferences in North America and in Asia, and I sent them the very same bio and the same picture I always send anyone who requests Praise the Lord. It was a spiritual success. There were lots of people, and they were very much engaged and responsive, and that makes uh, the speaker's job that much easier. But, of course, it was the working of the Holy Spirit in their life uh, as I preached from the Word of God. On the second day of the conference, in one of the meals, I forget, a lady, one of the pastor's wife, came up to me and told me something I'd never been told in my many years of speaking at conferences, Uh, with all sincerity, she said, Pastor Stephen, can I tell you something? I said, sure. She said, I think it's time for you to take a new picture of yourself. Uh, The one you sent to our church office doesn't really look like you. Now, I was a bit worried. Somehow I had defrauded them. Maybe I looked fatter in real life than the picture, and perhaps that disappointed them. Uh, In case you're wondering, the picture I sent is the one in the church's website. It was only taken a year ago. I believe it looks like me, but apparently to the church staff there, it didn't. Well, I asked her, why? Uh, Why doesn't the picture look like me? Well, she said, when you sent the email and the church staff opened it and saw the picture... They collectively thought, oh no, he looks so serious and he looks so old. And they assumed through the picture that I must be one of those typical, serious, intellectual Chinese pastor preachers. And they said, uh, after we became friends, they said, well, we thought about perhaps not inviting you, but we already extended to you the invitation before we got the picture. They said, it took a harder time to get people to come to this conference, unlike previous years, because your picture was used as the promo. Well, I told them, now that I'm here, what do you think now? Now that uh, you've had me for a few sessions, uh, uh, what do you think of me? Uh, To my joy, they said, well, you look really young, and you're always smiling, and you have a good sense of humor, and... uh, I said, thank you very much, but I will follow your advice. Uh, Apparently, that didn't come across in the picture I sent them, and I will try to have new pictures taken. But I said, auntie, let me ask you this. I thought that the Chinese like people who looked older and wiser, and I'm only 36 years old, and who's going to listen to a 36-year-old? She said, pastor, not the Chinese in North America. It's all about the image. So please, for the sake of your ministry, go get some new pictures taken of you. Wow, I thought to myself. I didn't realize pastors needed headshots as well. I thought only movie stars needed headshots. Image must be important. You know, we all look at the outward image to make judgment calls on one another. When we meet someone for the first time, we assess them naturally based on how they look, how their outward appearance, how their actions and attitudes, what we've heard of them from others. And we characterize them, fairly or unfairly, as that type of person. And so we spend so much time making sure that we have a good image. Even in the church, we make it a point that we look like a Christian that people think highly of us in the way we act, in the way we dress, in the way we talk. We place a high value on our image. And by working so much on our outward appearance, we perhaps think that's how God looks at us, whether directly or indirectly. Looks are more important than what is in the inside. But is that what God really looks at in his assessment of us? Do we care too much about our outward image that we forget about cultivating our inward character? That's what we want to take a look at this morning. And let's see what the Bible says about that. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, "How long will you reject, How long will you mourn for Saul? seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. For those of you who don't know, King Saul is the first king of united Israel. At his anointing and at his coronation, Everyone thought that Saul would be the perfect king. He really looked the part. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, that he was an impressive young man. He looked good. The Bible describes him as a man without equal among all Israel. The most good-looking guy in all of Israel. He was a head taller than anyone else. He was the tallest man amongst his contemporary. He was a warrior. He was a soldier. He was good material to be a king. In the Chinese, we can say it's in Taihong. He was very presentable. He looked kingly. And that's why all of the people thought Saul would make a great king. But God had rejected Saul as king, as we find out here in verse 1. Saul did not follow God. He did at the beginning, but his heart was turned against him. He openly rebelled against God's very instructions. So the prophet Samuel was now told by God to go anoint someone else to be the new king of Israel. And he was instructed to go to one of the smallest, most insignificant towns in all of Israel, the little town of Bethlehem. Jump down with me to verse 5. And so Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he meets Jesse and his family. And Samuel says to Jesse, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. The great prophet Samuel came and looked for the family of Jesse, asked him and his sons to be sanctified, to be consecrated, because one of his sons would be anointed as the next king of Israel, as God has revealed to the prophet Samuel. But before this momentous occasion of the anointing, the people had to be consecrated. They had to be purified. That's the idea of consecration and sanctification to be set apart, to be made holy. This was a special event. And those who would be presented before the Lord must be holy. And so Jesse and his entire family was sanctified. And so Jesse brings his sons as sort of a lineup before the prophet Samuel to know which of the sons would be the next king of Israel. And naturally, Jesse brings out his eldest, his firstborn, Eliab. Naturally, of course, he is the firstborn. And as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I was thinking about birth order. Eliab naturally would have been the one selected. He was the firstborn. That was his right. And we know that in our conservative Asian culture with regards to the birth order. We know about the great importance placed on the firstborn especially the firstborn son. But then I was beginning to think, what would be the worst position, birth order-wise, in any family? Now, some of you are firstborn, some of you are middle children, some of you are the youngest, some of you are the only child. But as I was thinking this week, what is the absolute worst position in a family, in a multi-child family? The worst position probably has to be the middle child who is the oldest son. That's my position. Why? Well, if you're the middle child, you don't get the blessings of being the firstborn, right? But if you are the oldest son, you have all of the responsibilities. So being the oldest son as a middle child, you don't get any of the blessings but all of the responsibility. I don't know how many of you fit within that qualification. But Eliab was the firstborn and the firstborn son. The one with the full birthright, the one given a double portion, the one with the full blessings from his father. Now, it's interesting to note that throughout the scripture, God doesn't necessarily always choose the firstborn to accomplish his will. So there is hope for you who are the middle children and who are the youngest Many times God chooses the younger sibling to accomplish his purpose, whether it be Moses or Jacob or Joseph, Seth or Judah. None of them were firstborn. And so our birth order does not disqualify us from serving our Lord. When Eliab was brought out, Even the prophet Samuel, even the great spiritual prophet Samuel thought this has to be the one. He's not only firstborn, he looks good. Look at verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel The prophet of God, who was a good assessor of people's character, thought, that's it. We found him, the next king of Israel, Eliab, the firstborn of Jesse. Surely God would anoint him. It was only natural. We find out that Eliab is a man of strength. He's a man of physical stature. He's a man of presence. He, like Saul, was also very presentable. It's in Taihong. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, which we'll study next week, Eliab, we see, is one of the soldiers fighting in Saul's army, fighting against the Philistines, against the giant Goliath. He must have been a strapping young man, a warrior, good-looking, kingly. Even Samuel made an assessment of what God wanted by looking at the outward appearance of Eliab. It's human nature. It is human perspective to look at the things on the physical and on the outside and make a judgment call on what is on the inside. Let's admit it. If you're honest to yourself, you're truthful, you are attracted to the things that are beautiful. You're attracted to beautiful things. We're all attracted to things that look nice. Just think of the way you pick fruit, We choose the fruit, generally based on if it looks good on the outside, if the color is shiny, if there are no bruising in the skin. It doesn't matter how it tastes on the inside, sweet or sour or salty or whatever. We look on the outside to make sure that it looks nice. We examine it. The fruit producers know that. They know that you're examining the outside because you can't open it. Once you open it, it's yours. You've bought it. That's why they put wax on apples to make them shiny. That's why, yes, they put food coloring in bananas to make the bananas as yellow as you think they need to be. They put chemicals and fertilizers and preservatives to make sure that the fruit looks good so that you'll buy it, regardless of how it tastes on the inside. That's how we choose things. We choose things that look good. Packaging is everything. How do we package something? And the importance of physical attractiveness is never more apparent than the way the world chooses a life partner. If you're honest with yourself, we are attracted to beautiful people. That is how God made us. It's funny, when I do the pre-interview for uh, weddings, we usually have the couples sit in my office, and usually I'll ask them this question. I'll ask them, what attracted you to the other person? What attracted you to your fiancé? It's funny sometimes. They think that because they're talking to a pastor that their answers must always be spiritual. And so they'll say stuff like, oh, I was attracted to her because of her gentleness and her sweet spirit. I'm attracted to him because of his leadership and his uh, Christ-likeness. And I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, great, good. And usually when they finish the list, I ask them, so you don't think they look beautiful? You don't think they look handsome? And they'll have usually a sheepish smile. Yes, I said, come on, honestly. What first attracted you to the other person? They look good. And that's the way it is. We are attracted to people as God has made us because they look good. They look good. You say, well, that's really shallow. Well, that's how we are. You know, we have a lot of things to thank God for. I thank God every day that my wife did not choose to marry me based simply on my physical beauty. I couldn't win a beauty pageant and my life depended on it. But I was attracted very much to her by her beauty. And as God to know her, the beauty of her spirit. But we are attracted. We, we make a judgment call based on what we see. Is this how God looks at us? If it isn't, what then is his criteria in assessing us? Look at verse 7 with me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see a man as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, But the Lord looks at the heart. Would you underline that verse? Would you highlight that verse? Would you circle that verse? That is the very criteria God uses to assess each one of us. Samuel must have been surprised that God did not choose Eliab. And the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his outward appearance. I have refused him. Not, I've rejected him forever. I've refused him to be the next king of Israel. And here we get a glimpse into the heart of God, God's criteria on how he assesses us. You wonder, well, how does God look at me? It's right here. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The heart is what God looks at when He assesses each one of us. It doesn't matter how intelligent, how beautiful, how popular, how studious, how fun-loving, how happy, how physically fit a person you are. God is looking at your heart to see if you are consecrated, if you are teachable, if you are responsive, if you are passionate for Him. And this can serve two purposes for each one of you. It can serve to encourage you, and it can serve to challenge you. Because there's a lot of people here this morning who feel that God cannot use them because they are broken. They don't look right. They are not eloquent. My friends, God doesn't care about those things. God is looking at your heart to see if it can be used. But it also serves as a challenge, a rebuke to those who think that because of their natural giftedness, they will naturally serve God, and God will naturally think highly of them and has thought highly of them by giving them these gifts. Be careful, because God is looking at your heart This is an important lesson to learn because it is so easy to fool one another, even in the church. It's easy to construct in your life an image of how others look at you and be so worried about what others think about you that you put as a second criteria if you will do what is right based on how people will think of you. I know this firsthand because I was one of the best at it. I could play the role of the perfect pastor's son. I could play the role of the perfect Christian. I knew all the right words to say to my uncles and my aunties at church. I knew the words to encourage them. I knew how to dress. I knew how to act. To create a facade that people will say Stephen is the prototypical Christian. My friends used to tell me how much they hated it. When their parents would tell them, why can't you be more like Stephen? He's so respectful. He goes to church every Sunday without problems. He serves in the choir. He's so involved. Why can't you be more like him? And I'm not bragging, and I'm also generalizing here, but this is true. I was the son that all the other church aunties wanted their daughters to marry. I remember that uh, my name was used often, even when I didn't know about it. As long as I went to an occasion, then it was okay for their children to go. Sometimes it backfires because... I remember an auntie once called the house to talk to my mother and was surprised to have me pick up the phone. The auntie was surprised that, Stephen, why are you at home? Aren't you supposed to be at so-and-so's party? I said, no, I've been here all day. But my son said you were going. That's why I let my son go. I said, you better talk to your son when he gets back. That was the facade That was the image that I had. But if you could peer into my heart, it was a heart of rebellion. It was a heart that ran away from God. It was a heart that wanted nothing of God. It was a heart that didn't want God to be in control It was a heart that was living a very worldly lifestyle. It was church on a Sunday, but it was the bar Monday through Friday. We can fool so many, but we cannot fool God. Because in his criteria and his assessment of each one of us, the Bible tells us, He does not look at your appearance. He does not care about your reputation. The Lord looks at the heart. Have you examined your heart lately? What does it look like? You may have a great reputation on the outside. You could be the CEO of your company, head of your family, well respected in the community. That's fine what does your heart look like? Put up your heart against the standards of God in the Scripture. How does it look? Putting up our heart against the standard that God has set in the Scripture makes our heart look pretty black. We have a lot of repenting to do. Look at verse 8. So Jesse called... Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Well, if Eliab is disqualified, perhaps my secondborn, Abinadab. We find out in the next chapter, Abinadab is also a fine-looking young man. He is serving in Saul's army, fighting against the Philistines and the giant Goliath. He also is a fine, strapping young man, fit to be the king. But the Bible tells us the Lord has not chosen this one. And in verse 9, Jesse made Shammah pass by the thirdborn. Shammah, we're going to find out in the next chapter, is also a fine-looking young man. This is a family with good genes. He also is a warrior. He's serving in Saul's army, fighting the Philistines and against the giant Goliath. But he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your young men here? Father Jesse is also looking at the outward appearance when he assesses his sons. He brings forth seven of his sons and passes them before Samuel, all fit and strapping young men, ready to be king. But none of them were chosen. Now we know how the story ends. God will choose David. But what I want you to see here is that Jesse does not even see fit David to be worthy to be brought before Samuel. Jesse, the very father of David, had already made an assessment of David and said, David, you don't look like a king. You don't need to come to this gathering. I'm sure Jesse loved David, but Jesse was partial to his other sons. He was showing favoritism. He doesn't even call David to the lineup. And some of you feel as if your parents were partial to you or to your older brother or to your older sister or younger brother or younger sister, and that just eats us up. But you know, my friends, that's reality. The world is not fair. The world puts favor ...upon those whom they are partial to. Deal with it. But praise God we don't have a God like that. Our God does not assess us... based on favoritism. God does not base His decision... ...on the class president... ...or the favorites. In fact, if you look at the scriptures... God usually honors and blesses those who are the least regarded. People like Ehud and Jephthah in the book of Judges. People like Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. Why? Why do you think God often uses the least regarded? I believe it's because the least regarded are often the humblest. And when someone who is lightly regarded... As doing something great Then does something great Then God gets all the glory You see, those who are talented Naturally talented I'm not saying God doesn't use them God uses them But those who are naturally talented And naturally gifted When they do something great Everyone says, oh, it's because They are so gifted They are so talented Sometimes you may also think like that. I've accomplished what I've accomplished. My business is what it is because I have a great business acumen. Because I'm shrewd. Because I have a great EQ. I can talk to people. It's because of me. And God says, okay, you keep thinking like that. I can't use someone like you. How discouraging... It will be one day when you find out that God did not use you because you were too proud. God does not share his glory with another. God cannot use you and will not use you if you are proud and if you do not give credit to him. God needs to tear you down so that he can build you up in the way that he wants. God assesses us By looking at our heart, and he looks to see if we are genuinely humble. We can fake humility all we want. The world on the outside may think we're the humblest person in the world. But God looks at the heart. He sees if that heart is pure or not. He looked at these seven young men, probably all very good men. But he said, no. Their heart is not right to be the next king of Israel. So what type of heart is he looking for? Look at verse 11 to verse 12. Then Jesse says to Samuel, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now, David was ruddy, bright eyes, good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. The one whom Jesse did not feel worthy to be brought before Samuel to be the next king of Israel, Samuel asked Jesse to go get. And here comes David. And here we see what he is doing. He is tending the sheep. He's probably doing the task that no one else wants to do. But here we see the type of heart God is looking for. He is looking for a shepherd's heart. A shepherd's heart. A shepherd's heart is a heart that is for God. A shepherd's heart is a heart that is attuned to the things of God. Here is the last child of an insignificant family living in an unimportant city in Israel doing an unimpressive job. But God is going to choose him to be the next king of Israel because God looked into his heart and he had a heart for God. He had a shepherd's heart. Compared with Saul's and his seven brothers, imposing physical kingly presence, here was a lowly shepherd David. A comparison of night and day, and yet he would be king. Now the Bible tells us David was good looking as well. But he wasn't described as the warrior type. He was described as being rudy, kind of scrappy. He had bright eyes. We can say perhaps he was very innocent, very naive. And here comes this innocent, scrappy shepherd boy, good looking, probably not as tall as his other brothers. And he will be the next king of Israel. Chosen not for his physical appearance, chosen because of his shepherd's heart. We will be developing what constitutes a shepherd's heart in these next few weeks. And I wish we had time to really exposit John chapter 10. But if you have time, go back and read it this week. John chapter 10 gives us the characteristics of a shepherd and the role of Jesus, the master shepherd. And you will gain some amazing insight into what is a shepherd's heart. However, I do want to briefly give you a glimpse of what a shepherd's heart entails through some of the psalm that David writes. David is a prolific poet. He writes many of the psalm in the book of Psalms. And we will be looking at various psalms after we talk about a few of his incidents in his life to show the expression of what his heart was going through. David had developed a shepherd's heart by being a shepherd, a heart wholly devoted for God. You see, he learned to see God as his great shepherd. And that's why he wrote that wonderful, famous, beloved psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There is nothing in my life that I'm looking for. I am fully satisfied Because you, O Lord, are my shepherd. You're watching over me. You're caring for me. Sensing in his own care for his own sheep how he is to care for other people. And that's what Israel needed. Israel needed a shepherd king. Living out in the open as a shepherd, bringing his sheep to graze, he would be out in the open elements, now, most people would complain, I don't want to do this. I don't want to, have, I want to have shelter when it rains. I want to have shelter when it gets cold, but not a shepherd. Likewise, when we have to do a job, we complain, oh, to look at sheep all day. That must be the most boring job in all of the world, but not David. When he had the opportunity to go out to the pasture land and live out in the open, David sensed the greatness of God through his creation. That's why he wrote in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Here was a man whose heart, whenever he walked out, his face was always looking up. He saw in the night sky with all of the stars, the majesty and the greatness of God. He looked up in the day and when he saw the clouds moving in and even when the bad weather rolled in with the thunder and the lightning and the lightning show, he said, wow, God, wow. Every day he walked out, his heart was declaring the praises of God. This is a shepherd's heart. Those silent years, perhaps weeks spent in the hills and the valleys of Israel tending sheep, deepened this young man's sense of who God is, His greatness and His power. And what he saw and envisioned about God worked its way into his heart and he lived it out. He saw the majesty of the voice that spoke through the thunder And so as we're going to find out next week when he stood before Goliath he looked at Goliath with the perspective of the God who speaks through the thunder and the storms. And that's how a young man can stand before the giants of the world because he had a shepherd's heart. His heart was Tuned and attuned towards the things of the Lord. And that's why God selected him to do mighty things for him. David had cultivated a shepherd's heart, which is a heart for God. Verse 13 Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. It will be many, many years before David is truly crowned king over all Israel. But why is he being anointed now? I believe Samuel is anointing David now as God has instructed because God wanted David to continue to guard his heart until such time he would rule over Israel. He wanted to take David where he was right then and there and say to David, David, you don't need to change. You don't need to be a warrior like your brothers. You don't need to manipulate the situation. You can continue to have the sensitivity of a heart that pleases God. I have chosen you, David, Because of the heart that you have now. You don't have to wait till the world accepts you. You don't have to wait until all the elders of Judah and all of Israel acknowledge you as one who is kingly. No. You don't have to put a facade or build up an image about yourself before I will choose you as king. You are kingly in my eyes because you have a heart for me. Oh, what great lessons for us in how we strive so hard to get people to like us and to impress people and we forget to impress the one we alone need to find accepting of us. Guard your heart, my friends. If you have a heart for God, that's all you need. I love how the anointing is described in verse 13. I wish I could paint. Maybe one of you can paint and would paint the scene one day. But I can't. I can't draw. Look what the Bible says. He is anointed in the midst, the idea, in the encirclement of his brother's just, just imagine in your head. I just want you to imagine this picture in your head. Seven brothers, all physically very fit. Uh, let's say six feet tall. Warriors. They are surrounding a little shepherd boy looking down on him. It's their kid brother. And he's getting anointed as the next king of Israel. He will be king over them. Or imagine seven graduating high school seniors all standing before a grade four student looking and bowing to him. And perhaps the title of this picture, this painting, the crowning of a king, the crowning of a leader. The world will look at this picture and say, well, there is something wrong with this picture. They chose a little boy when all these good looking men are there. What's wrong with this picture? There's something wrong with this picture, the world will say. But my friends, there is nothing wrong with this picture. This is the very picture, in verse 13, of God's selection process for the people He chooses to use. It is a picture of God's criteria because there is something unseen from the human eye. There is something the painter cannot paint. The artist cannot draw. What is unseen in this picture is that this little boy has the heart of gold. He has a heart of love and a heart of humility. He has a shepherd's heart. He has a heart consecrated towards God. What cannot be drawn, but it is there, is that he has a heart for God. I want you to notice a very small but very important detail the beginning of this chapter when Samuel called Jesse's family and consecrated them, purified them, David was not there. David was in the fields. So David was not, did not go through the purification ritual. Now, as he is to be anointed as the next king of Israel, why did Samuel not consecrate him? Did you ever think about that? Why did David not go through the purification as prescribed in the scriptures before he was to be anointed? This momentous occasion. Why was David not consecrated as his brothers had been? I believe it's because David's heart was already consecrated. He was already set apart He was already ready to be used by God. You see, the process of sanctification and consecration is to get yourself ready. David didn't need to get himself ready. He was already ready. What about you? In your life right now, as you look into your heart Are you ready this moment as God looks into each heart this morning? Are you ready to be used by God? Have you been set apart? Are you holy? Do you have a shepherd's heart? A heart that is responsive, a heart that is receptive, a heart that is teachable. Image is not everything. Now, image is important. For the glory of God, we want a reputation that is above reproach for the glory of God. But what is more important is the inward character. When we worry about what other people think about us, can we worry about what God thinks about us? So what does God think about you? And what he thinks about you is what is in your heart. If you need to confess a sin before the Lord this morning, or many sins, do it now. Because I pray that each of your heart will be pure. As you think about legacy, even before you pass from this earth, what will people say of you? How will they describe you? What can they say about you? Oh, he's a bit late. He's a hypocrite. She's flaky. She's insincere. What can be said about you? 10 years, 20 years, 50 years after you're long gone. It would be one of the greatest honors If it can be said of you, this was a man, this was a woman after God's own heart. Wow, can you imagine that? We can all strive for it. And if that cannot be said of you today, begin to work at it so that it can be said of you, this man, this woman, is a man and woman after God's own heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the truths that are, have been displayed in, in this story. Lord, I sometimes also forget getting so caught up with what people think about me that I work so much on my image forget to work on my character I pray Lord this morning through the wake up call of your word as you have so vividly laid out for us the criteria of how you look at people that we would all begin this morning to work on our heart condition putting our heart against the standard of the scriptures to make sure that our heart is holy and pleasing before you Use us, Lord. Use us mightily. We all want to develop a shepherd's heart, a heart that is sensitive to your leading, a heart that stands in wonderment of who you are, a heart that is wholly devoted to you. It is my prayer that when each life is assessed of each person who is here this morning in our church, That it will be said of them by the community, by others who follow after them. This is a man, this is a woman after God's own heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.